I hope Rob didn't call in yet. Yes. Welcome. Welcome. This is going to be the biggest show we've ever the had. Second show of the season. Second show, starting off with a baboom. Yes. Uh, biggest show ever on Music Biz 101 and more Brave We're New back Radio. Back into the semester. Back into the semester. That's right. Back in black. I can't do ACDC. This is a very small place. Is there an echo in here? Is there an echo in here? That's what I said. That's what I said. So we have people people to thank, so we get going right away. Why don't we jump right into it, because we have a great guest, Rob Light, the head of music at CAA, and we do have a student co-host. Let's thank her for being here, Teresa Abu Dawood, right? Close enough, yeah. Very good. She volunteered to be here, which is great. We had two students volunteer to be here. Um, Then we have behind the glass, even though there is no glass, we have... Our uh, product of German engineering. Her name is Ashley Veltner. Ashley Veltner. Ashley yes. Veltner. Yes. So uh, follow us, musicbiz101wp.com. We're on Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. Our podcast, of course, many of you will be listening to the podcast. iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Spotify machine. And how many hot podcasts do we have now? We're Almost up to 225 that we've uploaded. Must and we've done more shows than that, but some blew up. Oh. Yes, never happened. But we should give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kith. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you're ready. Hey, and let's give thanks to Christine. Hey. Let's give thanks to Christine Hoy Vey, a wealth manager and the president of Vey Wealth Management. Christine has helped many professionals at William Patterson the University manage their investments, plan out for their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan out for your retirement, if you have questions on anything from investments, portfolio management, to insurance retirement planning, give Christine a call at Teresa. Follow my lead. 732. 732. 455. 455. 1510. 1510. We can always email her, Christine at com for advisement. Leave the last oi off for savings. Why would you not? Of course, William Patterson, the university, is ranked one of the best music business programs in all the nation, according to Billboard magazine That's for the last correct. two years in a row and three of the last five years. And we are in the second half of year five of this. And as Dr. Esteban Marconi wow. mentioned, we're uh, this is around number 225 or something like that. Yeah, it's great. Yes. And we're very excited to have, is Rob Light with us now? And I don't mean just alive. Is he, had he called in Robert Light of Creative Artists Agency? Are you on? I'm on the phone, guys. Nice to talk to you all. Yes, great to have you. I am uh, Professor David Philp, and of course, you know your old uh, professor, Dr. Stephen Marconi. 
That's right. Yes. The former professor, not yes. old professor. Yeah. Did I say, oh, I didn't eat more old in age? That's right. Of course, you're very young, especially with the. Yeah. So, how are you, Rob? I'm, uh, I'm doing very, very well. I've uh, been blessed to have a remarkable career that's still uh, going incredibly strong. So, uh, I. I give Syracuse University a lot of that credit, and you certainly were a part of that, Steve, so I appreciate it. And I take no credit, because, what, did you come in 74? 74 was my uh, oh, freshman year. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that was the first year I was teaching. I was 28 years old, and you guys were sitting there, and, and I mean, I, I just, the number of people through that uh, late 70s, that made it in the industry from Steve and Harvey to um, John Sykes too. Sykes to Quaterero. Oh, John Sykes and I shared a house together. Phil Quaterero was uh, my root. Well, lived next door to me my freshman year. Phil went on to become the president of Warner Brother Records yep. and Virgin Records. John obviously started MTV and went on to run Chrysalis and is now the president of iHeartRadio. Correct. Ted Utz. Yeah, owns a number of radio stations. Ed Levine, who owns a number of radio. Yeah, stations. Ed Levine, correct. Steve Leeds is at Sirius. Harvey Leeds, um, yeah, He's managing Southside Johnny guys. now. Right. Yeah. So that's great, uh, but I take no credit because I was one page ahead of these guys <laughs> in the book. Yes. <laughs> Did you? Uh, you must have attended that uh, those large lectures that uh, Cy Leslie ran. Uh, I was in a Cy Leslie lecture. I've been to, I mean, we had a lot of great teachers at the time. I can't right. remember all of them, but, uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, I remember it was, that. It was as much the classes as it was the hands-on experience, whether it was working at the school station, WAER was the most, probably the most important college radio station, student-run radio station at the time. Correct, and yeah. The concert committee was incredibly vibrant, and. Uh, the club we had on campus, which was called Jabberwocky, Correct. had some of the greatest bands ever. Yep, uh, yep. Uh, there's a very famous broadcast on AER of the Talking Heads in 1976, a year before Talking Heads 77 came out. So. Ah, I didn't know that. So you started out uh, at Concert Board in terms of went, can, your interest in the in the business? I went to college to be a writer. Mm-hmm. It was during the Watergate era, I wanted to be a journalist. My freshman year, I wrote an article about the concert committee. And when I read it back, I said, wow, that's exciting. I should be doing mm-hmm. that because I love music as we all did uh, in the, at that time. And I joined the concert committee uh, at the end of my sophomore year, went on to run it, ran it my sophomore, mm-hmm. uh, junior and senior year. Um, truth be told, I've still never graduated. I'm nine credits short. <laughs> uh, but... Um, Got a job in the mailroom uh, at ICM before I actually graduated, and one week after graduation, was working in the mailroom at ICM. Mm-hmm. Did Did you know somebody at ICM, or had you through concert board uh, bought uh, some uh, acts? Concert or? committee. I, I had met a bunch of people. Um, you know, I booked a lot of shows. I applied for a job at William Morris and ICM. Uh, William Morris turned me down. Mm-hmm. I have the rejection letter still hanging in my office. Hey. <laughs> ICM offered me a job. Um, I started on a Monday. Uh, normally, when you went into the mailroom, first of all, I didn't even believe there was a mailroom. I thought, right. well, if I ran a concert committee, I'll be an agent in a week. Right. I was. <laughs> I, was. Uh, I was in the mailroom six days. 
uh, normally the average wait was nine months to a year when I was going on a delivery back then in New York, you'd take packages, deliver them over the city. Mm -hmm. Um, I got in the elevator with another kid in the mailroom who, as we were going down the elevator, told me when we get back or when I get back, I have a meeting. They just transferred a senior music agent from LA to New York and I have an interview with him. And that kid left the elevator. When he turned the corner, I went back up in the elevator, walked into that agent's office, said, I'm your guy. He hired me on the spot, and I got out of the mailroom in six days. Wow. That's great. It's a great story. So how long did you stay at ICM? Uh, I was an agent there for, uh, well, I was an assistant for about four months. I went to work for a guy named Shelley Schultz. Mm -hmm. It's a much longer story. I won't bore you with the whole story, but... uh, I got promoted to agent when I was 21. Wow. Um, in uh, spring of 1981, John Sykes called me uh, and said, hey, we're starting a new business. Do you want to leave being an agent and come be the senior VP of artist relations? I went to meet him and a guy named Bob Pittman, and they told me about this new business. They were going to start <laughs> a channel on cable TV and show these mini movies called videos. All right. I said it was the stupidest effing I've ever heard. <laughs> Because nobody watched music, and, and there was no such thing as cable TV. No one had it. Right. And I passed on MTV in April of 1981. Of course, <laughs> went on the air in August of 81. Um, I stayed there for till uh, fall of 83, and uh, ICM transferred me to the West Coast. Um, and when I got out here, my boss at the time literally resigned the day I got to L.A. <laughs> I didn't know anybody here. And... Um, that company asked me to sign a contract. I said I wouldn't sign a contract if I didn't know who my boss was. And uh, they fired me uh, because I wouldn't sign. Mm-hmm. I got job offers from William Morris, a um, bunch of different companies, and a guy named Mike Ovitz called me up sure. and said, we're going to start a music department, and uh, the guy who you were going to work for is going to be the head guy. We want you to be the number two. CAA at the time was 27 people. Not 27 wow. people in the music department, the entire agency. Wow. 27 people. And uh, I started there on January 4th, 1984, January 3rd, 1984, and I've been here 35 yeah. years. Maybe wow. the longest tenured executive at one company uh, in the music business. Yeah, that's great. I'd like to go back to one thing because there's a book out called The Mail Room. And in that book, you talk about how you became an agent at ICM, and it had to do with the Bay City Rollers. And uh, there was a big lesson you learned at the end of that. I know you didn't want to go into the whole boring story you said, but... Um, oh, it's you... not boring. Yeah, I'm happy to tell it. So yeah, because it's, it's a great story and a great lesson at the end. Uh, well, I always say about the, the, you know, going up in the elevator, I'm a big believer information is power. And, and that young man who shared it with me had a piece of information that he shouldn't have shared. Yeah. And how you use information and where you share it is important. When I went to work as an assistant, I got transferred to a guy named Shelley Schultz's desk who was booking the Bay City Rollers. Now, for your listeners who don't know who the Bay City Rollers were, they were the biggest boy band of the era. They were the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, One Direction of 1978. Yeah, correct. And because there was no social media, you know, that band could, a band like that would go skyrocketing to the top and six months later could be dead and gone. And we had booked a huge tour for them. It was doing great. The second tour was a disaster. It was so bad that they were literally doing between 800 and 1,000 people in Madison Square Garden-sized arenas. Um, And the band didn't want to cancel. 
they were going to keep playing no matter what because they wanted the money. They knew it was coming to an end. And um, my boss called me into my his office. I was his assistant, a guy named Shelley Schultz, and said, here's a plane ticket to Louisville, Kentucky. You're going to leave tomorrow morning. Your job is to con- convince the Bay City Rollers to cancel their tour. And if you do, when you get back, I'll make you an agent. And if you don't, don't come back. <laughs> Hand to God, that's what he said. And um, off I went. Um, got there midday. Uh, and all I kept thinking in my head is, what am I going to do to to convince these guys, but I realized, and, and the lesson is, you have to listen before you talk. And um, I spent the afternoon with them, heard about their life stories, their frustration with being a boy band, and and they had said to me, if you're here to get us to cancel, you might as well turn around. And I said, I'm not here to get you to cancel. I'm here just to be your friend. Your agent should be out here struggling with you. I watched the show. Um, and after we went out to dinner and I, I looked at these guys and said, you know, you guys are really good musicians. I don't know how you got labeled this. And if it was up to me, we'd change the name of the band, get your new record deal, get rid of the costumes that you're in and go be a real rock band and start over. And here's how I would do it. And the lead singer of the band said, well, that all makes sense. What do we have to do to put that in place? And of course the answer is cancel the tour. And they did that night. And, mm-hmm. and off we went. And everything I promised them, so if, if lesson two is to listen and, and understand how artists are thinking and feeling before you actually try to engage them, lesson three is to, to deliver on your promise. And everything I said I would do, I did. We changed the name. We got them a new record deal. We did all those things. They weren't as good as I thought they were, mm-hmm. uh, and it didn't necessarily work. But I do- everything I promised them, uh, I delivered on. And uh, I became an agent at 21. Wow. And did you stay friends with them? Well, I mean, for that year, we we worked together. I mean, after that, you know, they changed the name to the Rollers. They got a new record deal with Arista. Um, It it didn't work. They sort of went back to England and and Scotland, and and it was sort of over. So I I haven't seen them in 40 years. They're still a band, but uh, um, that's how it came. And that's how I became to be an agent. Yeah. So what's the key what's the key thing you look for when you're going to sign a band? This is for our listeners, of course. What, um, what is it that, you know, that just convinces you totally? Well, I, I, I've always said this um, when I teach classes and when I talk to people. You have to understand what charisma is. And charisma is the ability to touch someone beyond their five senses. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to make a connection beyond how you would normally make a connection. Now, to be able to see that, touch it, feel it, is a skill like anything else. And so if you're in this business over time, you learn to look for things that maybe it's a great guitar player, maybe it's a great songwriter, maybe it's someone who just conveys and energy, and you see the crowd get motivated in a different way. Now, there are different levels of it, but I'm looking for that differentiator. But like anything, the more you do it, the more you can see it. Mm-hmm. So everybody loves music. Everybody wakes up and goes, hey, I love that band. Well, if you've only seen five showcases, one of the five is going to be good, and you think you're good at it. When you've seen 10,000 showcases, your, your ability to differentiate good from great and great from really unique becomes much more fine-tuned. To me, it's one of the problems with, you know, um, the shows like The Voice and American Idol and all these TV shows. Mm -hmm. If you take 11 contestants and put them on a stage, 
someone's better than the other 11, 10. Just, you know, you could take any 11 people, one person's going to sing bigger, better than the other. doesn't mean any of them are good. It just means one is better than everybody else. So we get this false sense of, oh, they must be great. Mm. No, they're just better than everybody else on that stage. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's hard to then look for that magic chemistry and, and you develop an eye and an ear for it and, and you feel it. And hopefully mm -hmm. uh, if you do find that skill, you know, as I probably have to some degree, you get to sign a lot of great artists over your career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Uh, Teresa is our student co-host and she has a question for you. Hi, how are you? Uh, ter Good, I Teresa. just had a quick question for you. So, you talk about that spark or the magic that you kind of get from somebody and mm -hmm. that's how you know you want to have them work with you is was there ever a time where you chose somebody that you thought had that and they didn't or somebody that you passed on that you thought didn't have that and they ended up having it well, talking uh, about today, I, 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 I <laughs> could give you hundreds. That's what I said. You, you, you can't do this. And, and, and nobody It's sort of like baseball. If you bat 300, you strike out seven times. You're still the best in the league. So nobody bats a thousand. You hope that you get it right more often than not. So, you know, I, I've had the privilege uh, where I've signed five artists who've won best new artist. you know, from Mariah Carey to Bruce Hornsby, um, you know, I signed Ariana Grande at 15, Christine Aguilera at 16. Mm -hmm. um, just recently saw it signed Dua Lipa when she was 19 and didn't have a record deal. So I've developed a skill for that. Um, there are people I did think had it that, that didn't make it. Um, those you tend to forget pretty quickly. <laughs> um, the one that always haunts, haunts me because we're at, we've actually become really good friends uh, is Cheryl Crow. I met Cheryl Crow when she was a backup singer, um, and she played me her first album, which got scrapped, and then played me her second album, which was her first album ever released, uh, The Tuesday Night Club. And, um, and I listened to it, and I thought it was good. I have to be honest, I didn't think it was going to change the world. I just thought it was good. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had this vision that her label and her manager that she was going to become this cool alternative rock artist. And um, to me, it was sort of like James Taylor and Don Henley and belonged in that vein. Um, and I wasn't even sure she could break off of that. And we passed. And um, here she is 40 years later, still making unbelievably great music. Her new album's fantastic. Mm -hmm. and, and every time I see her, you passed on me. You had a shot. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, you know, nobody's is right all the time. Interestingly, though, uh, her first opening act tour uh, was, I think, in 94, and she opened for the Eagles on their uh, Hell Freezes Over tour, the first one, because uh, you brought up well, Don Henley. Well, I, and actually, that that's not the – if you really go back, the first show she played were with Squeeze. Uh, and a &M uh, huh. Records forced her onto a bunch of dates with some of their cool alternative acts, and it didn't work. Mm. So I was right. And then they shifted gears, and they put her out with Henley and the Eagles, and she went down the road. She was probably meant to go down. But they, they were trying to make her this, you know, cool alternative girl at the time. Yeah. yeah. So, so if it is 1993, 1994, and you did sign Sheryl Crow, and A&M is saying she has to open for for Squeeze. She has to. As the agent, who are you talking to to say, that, 
and especially if your gut is saying this is the wrong thing, are you doing all you can to convince the manager? Are you talking to the artist in conjunction with the man- with the manager's blessing? How are you trying to stop that from happening when you think it's the wrong thing? Well, th- th- there's no one way to do this. That That's the problem. When, when, when you do an interview like this, you think about the business. Everyone thinks, well, you paint it with one brush. Everything's the same. Mm-hmm. E- every situation's different. I have clients where there's no manager and I'm talking directly to an artist. I have clients where I rarely talk to the artist and I'm talking to a manager who's really in control. And there are times when the label has a lot of input. So... Part of it is not unlike going back to my um, basically roller story. You're you're you have to learn and understand the situation you're in, and and, and take in how things get moved, and and you're trying to find the right way to m- move something forward. So in, in the case of Cheryl Crow, in that situation, I knew her manager, I knew her. I probably would have gotten everybody in a room, and and we would have all talked it through. Inevitably, the manager and the artist are going to make the final decision. But you have to understand your client. So um, a great example to that, I, I have the unbelievable privilege to represent Stevie Wonder. I've been Stevie Wonder's agent for almost 25 years. And Stevie is his own guy. You cannot tell him what to do. You wouldn't even try to tell him what to do. right? And all you can do is make suggestions. And he, in his own mind, figures out what the right thing is to do. When he played Bonnaroo, which was the first festival he ever played... Um, he was playing nine o'clock Saturday night. It was the penultimate. I mean, it was the spot mm-hmm. and he'd never played a festival. Um, and the promoters are saying, look, you got to make sure he plays a greatest hit set. And I said to the promoters, if I tell him to play a greatest hit set, he's going to play ballots. All right. Mm-hmm. You don't tell Stevie wonder what to do. But what I did is I wrote him a very long email and, and I said, look, Steve, I would never tell you what to play. I'm just going to describe the situation. It's 9 o'clock on a Saturday night. The sun will have just gone down. It's 90,000 college kids. They've never seen you. They only know your music through their parents. And they are there to have a party and have a great time. And I know you'll figure out what the right set is. And he played arguably one of the five greatest shows I think I've ever seen. It was almost three hours of up-tempo Stevie Wonder hits, Michael Jackson songs, Marvin Gaye songs, Beatles songs. It was mm. epic. And people who were there still talk about it. But if I had said play that set, not sure he would have. So I understand how to let him find his way. Other artists want to be told exactly what to do. So um, part of it's just being able to adapt to, to the situation you're in, which always starts with listening and, and understanding who you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Today we hear so much about uh, the promoter-oriented tours, a Live Nation tour, an AEG tour, and so on. What what does that do for the agent in terms of trying to find a spot that they can still contribute, or do they need an agent, uh, a band that's on a tour like that? I think now... In that setting, they need agents more than ever. Mm-hmm. If you're a national promoter, you have one motivation. You've probably put up tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And your goal now is to recoup the investment you right. have made, right? Um, it takes eyes and ears from the other side to say, what is the right play? What's the right move? Are we in the right venue at the right time? Are mm-hmm. these the right ticket prices? Are the promotions... 
uh, consistent? Have we missed an opportunity that that promoter may not be involved in? Um, you know, and I represent Ariana Grande. We did a great deal with Live Nation. Live Nation is a great partner, a great partner, mm-hmm. um, and really fantastic people there. That said, there was an opportunity to put Ariana Grande on Coachella, and Coachella is an AEG property. If I'm not there, I don't get to maneuver the tour around and get Live Nation to step back and get her to headline Coachella, mm-hmm. which was an, an incredible moment for her. It made a statement about her and the rest of her tour, and everybody won. Live Nation benefited, AEG benefited, most importantly, the artist benefited, and um, maybe that doesn't happen if I'm not the agent. Mm. So um, a good agent is going to guide that early part of the career. A good agent is going to make recommendations where and when to be. You know, we do other things. We're putting artists on the right TV shows, in the right festivals, picking the right time periods to tour. Um private events, books, you know, we represent Logic. Logic writes that great song, mm-hmm. you know, has a great great run, writes a book. We make the book deal for him. Second it comes out, goes to number one, we make a movie deal for the rights to the book. Doesn't happen with a promoter. Mm-hmm. So we're much more than just finding a gig on a Saturday night. Hopefully we're adding a lot <laughs> more to the, to the build. Yeah. And when you're routing a tour, let, let's say for like an Ariana Grande or somebody like that, um, so many indie promoters have been bought up over the last couple of years, especially. Um, are you doing every single, I guess you have to do what's best for the artist, but do you also try and support some of the uh, promoters that are still independent, but still successful out there, like a Jam Productions, for example, in the Chicago area, um, or, or Madison House or something like that? Do you still try and support uh, those guys or it's... You'd love to, but it's about the artist no matter what. Well, first, it's always yeah, about yeah, the artist. Yeah. It starts there. And, and and don't misunderstand. I don't think that Live Nation or AG have a different agenda. I think their agenda is always about the artist as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've made an overall deal with Live Nation and they've made the kind of financial commitment and promotional commitment that you've asked for, then selling to an independent is not part of that deal. If you have an artist that you know you want to sell to independents on who've played for independents, then you want to make that part of the deal before you even start. So you may say to an artist, look, we shouldn't do a national deal. One way to handle it, you may say to, to Live Nation AG, all right, we're going to make this worldwide deal, but we're going to carve out these eight cities, and they can decide to say yes or no. So you try to build that in, in into the overall um, landscape of it. Um, I always think there are cracks for independence to come through, but you've got to find those moments. Going into New York or Chicago is hard. Um, but there are secondary markets and there are festival markets. And, and I, I always think there's an opportunity where some audience is underserved, where someone creative can break through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you route a tour, you mentioned, uh, was it Ariana who, you, who uh, or unless I saw it in a video, you, you had uh, like 23 festivals were part of this person's tour that you routed. Um, are you trying to uh, get a good mix? And, and is there a right mix of festival versus single show versus, you know, and then dealing with uh, radius clauses and days off and all that kind of stuff? Well, you, you have to go into each of these, every situation, and look at it as, as its own unique canvas. There is no cookie-cutter way 
to break an artist, there's no cookie cutter mix of what's right and wrong. Right? Every artist has a, a slightly different arc to it because every artist brings a different thing to the stage and, and to their music. So I will say this about festivals. I'm not a huge believer in festivals unless you have a plan behind it. Meaning, if you're a headliner, festivals are great. If you're in the penultimate slot, festivals are great. If you're that baby act and you're going on at 12 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, mm. that festival is doing nothing for you but being a name on a poster. So if you have a great agent and that agent said, look, we're going to get on that poster. We're going to say we're part of this festival, but I'm going to get you back in this market within 90 days so that the 500,000 people that might have seen you get to come back and see you again. And we start to build bases in these markets. Then there's a plan there. Mm -hmm. The only plan is get on the festival. Your agent's doing a bad job. So, mm -hmm. that, so that's. That's number one for that level. The other thing is you have to understand your artist and if they're going to score. So I, I tell this story a lot. I had the privilege um, about five or six years ago, a couple of my young agents called me up. I was in New York and said, Rob, there is a band playing tonight downstairs at Webster Hall, which is a 200-seat club in Manhattan that we love. We think they're great. Could you go check them out? And I go into this club, and I am blown away. Best live band I had seen in five years. And I call them from the club and said, we have to sign this at any cost. This band is unbelievable. And it was 21 Pilots. Mm -hmm. And we signed the band. Now, they were from Columbus, Ohio. They had a following in Columbus for about 500 to 1,000 people. And they set up a showcase in Columbus. And I wrote a letter to every festival buyer in the U.S. and said, I'm going to pay for you to fly to Columbus to see this band, that's how sure I am they're going to do great on your festival. I got three responses. One, we'll put them on the festival just because you believe. Two, we'll take you up on it. We'll fly to Columbus. Or three, we'll put them on the festival not to have to come to Columbus. <laughs> e either of the three were fine. They did 40 festivals that summer. Wow. But if you've seen 21 Pilots and you sort of see sure. how dangerous Tyler is and you see how they perform... That was the perfect festival band. And by the third or fourth festival, the buzz was out. Don't miss 21 Pilots. And by the end of that summer, they had built a fan base that was fanatic. And if the truth be told, they had sold out two nights at Madison Square Garden before the first song really got on the radio because they had built a live base. But I could do that for 21 Pilots. I don't know that that same formula would work for a different band. So I never go into, and I tell my young age, we don't go into any of these with this, all right, here's the plan. Every artist has a different art to it, and, and you have to be flexible enough to, to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of what you're talking about is uh, based upon a tweet, a question we got via tweet that Teresa is going to read to you right now. So Madeline Dean wants to know, how involved are you and CAA with artist development? Incredibly involved. Um, I don't care... I mean, I am blessed to represent 100 of the biggest acts in the world, and, and it is a great privilege to do so. But, but the joy of this business is seeing 21 pilots and saying, wow, that's great, and then being there when they, when they headline. It's, it's being involved with Maggie Rogers and, and watching her go on a headline. It's, uh, um, you know, as I said, when Dua Lipa came into the office and my associate and I were sitting there, my hand had got before her butt hit the seat. I said, you're going to be a star. There, there was so much energy in the room. She had such electricity around her. Mm -hmm. And then they 
played two songs and you went, this, she just has it. So, um, uh, there, there, again, there, there's no cookie cutter way to do it, but, um, artist development is, is sort of the joy of this. You want to find young things and, and be a part of it. And, you know, like I said, Ariana Grande came into my office when she was 15 and a half. I've been privileged to be working with Miley Cyrus since she's 13. Um, but I work with Mar Mariah Carey, who I signed when she was 18, and she's not 18 anymore. So <laughs> it's, uh, you, you get to do a little bit of all of that. Um, and then you get to work with, you know, great established artists who've been doing it for a long, long time. So. Great. Okay. And um, we have another question for you. Another tweet. Uh, Will McKee wants to know, according to a Billboard interview, you see shows five to six nights a week and still make it into the office early in the morning. Do you believe this kind of all-day, night drive is important when looking for people to hire? That's a great question. Um, I think everybody's work schedule or pace is different. I'm looking for someone who is as passionate as me, who loves it, who wants to devote their life to it. I don't think this is a 9-to-5 job, and I don't think it's a job that you can do from a cell phone in a car. So... Um, I, I built my time schedule because it works for me. I like 6.30 to 9.30 in the office because there's no one here. And I can think and I can write emails and I can listen to music and I sort of find that creative rhythm. Um, I go out because I still love live music. And if you don't, this is honestly one of the stupidest businesses to get into if you don't <laughs> actually like that experience. So I'm not doing it to be a martyr. It's how I run my life. Um, I also, so I'm looking for people who bring that intensity, that intensity or passion to it. I'm also very understanding that if you've got young kids, I raise five children, um, you've got to make accommodations for all of that, but, but it's sort of the energy you bring to the table. And, um, and I'm looking at people who are that hungry and it doesn't mean being here at six 30. Um, but it also doesn't mean showing up at 11 o'clock and going to lunch at one o'clock and, you know, sort of not responding to, to emails. And um, and I can tell that it's not a time clock. It, it's a different attitude that you bring to it. Mm -hmm. So last, uh, last year, I don't know if you read it, Michael Ovitz, who was one of the founders of CAA, had a memoir that came out. And he stated that when he and the founders uh, founded the company, a core goal of the company had to be that the agents would create work for clients and not just field offers. What what does that mean to you, and is that how you guys, how CAA works today? Well, any great agent is trying to create opportunity. Any representative is trying to create opportunity. If all you're doing is sitting back and waiting for the phone to ring, you better have a great roster, and you better be very confident that that client is not looking for something different. But you, you constantly have to be thinking of, of ideas to create opportunities. So um, whether it's trying to find an opportunity to get on a TV show, whether it's convincing James Corden to do carpool karaoke, um, whether it's finding a hook of an anniversary, you know, we're, we're trying to find uh, an opportunity for John Fogarty. He turns 75 next year. We're going to do a 75th birthday party for him at the forum. Hmm. You know, I'm always reading Wikipedia pages or interviews or, or looking for things. Have you read the CA book, the big book? Um, Powerhouse. I represent, Powerhouse. Yeah. Um, I talk about where I represented Hart. I still represent Hart. 
And, you know, they had sort of hit a lull, partially because of how, you know, classic rock plays and the number of stations playing that. And these girls are still amazing, and no one sings better than Ann Wilson. And when I saw that Led Zeppelin was getting a Kennedy Center honor, I immediately called the producers and said, you have to put Hart on that part of the tribute. And the producers didn't know who Hart was and said, we're, we're not interested, we're going a different direction. And I never stopped. I sent him videos. I sent him records. I sent him reviews. Well, if you saw that show, it's not, and you can go online and Google it, mm. but it ended up being the finale of that Kennedy Center Honors, and Ann and Nancy did Stairway to Heaven with Jason Bonham playing drums. It went on to be seen 30 or 40 million times on YouTube, um, changed the entire arc of their career, got them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that was all proactive. Nobody said, can you get me on the Kennedy Center Honors? It never came up. It was me being a proactive agent. So I, I think anybody who's in the representation business has to be constantly looking for opportunity. And, um, you know, whether the agent here who put, you know, the lead singer Panic at the Disco on Broadway, whether it's, you know, putting somebody in a TV show we just got um, – uh, Kenya Barish, who produces the TV show Blackish and Grownish, has a new TV series this year called Mixish. Mariah Carey's Mixed Race. I call Kenya and say, hey, what do you think about Mariah doing the title song to the show? Love the idea. She loved the idea. She's got the title song to the show. Mm. Right? Nobody asked. It was just me being proactive. So um, whoever asked that question, that's a big part of it. Yes, you have to aggressively be looking for opportunities. Mm -hmm. And is that part of your sales pitch when somebody, I'm trying to think of a big artist, for example, they decide I'm going to leave one agency and I'm going to go to another. And I actually want to talk to CAA and I want to talk to William Morris or Paradigm. Um, is that part of your pitch to that artist yeah, I, to sign I mean, with you guys? I, I, yeah, I, I, pitch sounds to me, you know, I, I, I hate that word because it sounds mm -hmm. so like prepackaged. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. When we sit with an artist, we're trying to both show them what we think we can do for them, but explain what we've done for other artists and how we view it. And, and my hope is that artists are going to sit here and hear what we've done for other clients and how we think. Because so much of it is just how you approach the whole process. And to that last question, if the process is, hey, we're going to wait for a hit single and we're going to wait and then we're going to do this normal formula – that works for some artists. It's not how we think. We're not sitting there waiting. If we had waited for Maggie Rogers to have a hit single, she'd still be sitting home. Mm. And the fact is she's selling out six, seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 seats a night. Same for Leon Bridges. Um, uh, same for 21 Pilots, right? So we're, we're not – so when you tell those stories to new artists, you hope they respond and go, wow, these people think creatively and, um, uh, and are going to push the agenda. They're not going to wait for the agenda to, to come to them. So, um, yes, it's part of our presentation to, to what we do. Um, goes back to an early thing I said, we want to show great passion about the music. Um, we got to love it. You know, um, we, we just had a meeting with a young artist and, and, and we didn't get this particular artist. And, and I knew in the meeting we weren't going to get it because no one in the room really wanted, I could tell no one in that room, the young agents weren't really committed to it. They didn't have a, idea how to move it forward and um and i'm sure the artists felt that i've sat in meetings where 
artists walk out floating on air because they feel the energy in the room. So, um, well, talk, you yes. Well, you brought up Maggie Rogers, and she's somebody who it, it's almost like there was that video of her at NYU with Pharrell. Um, Pharrell listening to her song, and you look at her face as she's listening to her song, and his face as he's hearing the song, and it almost looked like Maggie Rogers went from that video to, you know, very quickly she might have already been signed when that totally went viral, but to to that to now you you know selling six thousand seaters, it's like it happened overnight, and obviously it didn't happen overnight. But what are some of the creative things that you think you guys did to get her to that level as quickly as she did? Well. The first thing you notice if you go to a Maggie Rogers show is her connection to her audience is almost indescribable. You know, it, it is a relationship that beyond what I see with most artists, and I can't even put my finger, I couldn't describe it to you in words, but there is this emotional connection, male and female, that they're all, they're all one, right? And um, so when you see that, you immediately understand we just got to get her in front of people. Her audience is going to find her, and when they do, they lock in, and then they bring other people with them. So, so much of this was getting her into the right venues in front of the right audiences so that audience could then tell someone else. Um, and so the agents who worked on that, the, the Bobby Corey and Marlene Tucci and a couple of other people in my company, were very aware of that. They wanted to be in what we call hard-ticket scenarios, um, and, and the difference for, for your audience between a hard ticket and a soft ticket. A soft ticket is a festival. You're not buying a ticket for a particular artist. You're buying it for a, an event, mm -hmm. a casino, uh, a festival, a fair. Hard ticket is when you're buying a, a ticket for an artist. You're putting down your dollars to see that act. And so we're always trying to create scenarios where artists can be hum become hard ticket sellers because it means they've made a connection to their fan base. Uh, and that was Maggie. We just knew. And so we wanted to price it right. We wanted to get more people in. We wanted to be in venues that let her do her show in a really energized setting. And it, it worked, you know, um, but it's, it's rare. You don't get that where every show she played, Honestly, there wasn't a show that I saw, and I haven't seen all of them, obviously, where I didn't feel like we could put the next show on sale the next day and double what we had done the day before. Hmm. At, what point did, sort of at what point did you guys sign her? Pretty early. Uh, I mean, I couldn't tell you the date. Or, right, you know, her managers are, are good friends of ours. We had done Leon Bridges with her managers, and obviously Leon, in the same sort of scenario, really didn't have a lot of airplay. It was touring. They loved what we had done with Leon. <clears throat> we had heard about her. Um, they had signed her for management. We all sort of agreed this is something we wanted to work on together, and she liked the people we put in the room with her, and off we go. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Didn't you have a question about hip-hop? Oh, yeah. I did have a question. Hip-hop <laughs> and rap in terms of um, arena shows and so on, does it still have a stigma that, that it's had in terms of, you know, extra security, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I think security in general is strong for everything now. You know, when you go back to what happened to Ariana in Manchester or what mm. happened in Las Vegas, I don't think it's uh, predicated to one genre of music. Um, and I think it's a great testimony to this, to millennials and to the younger generation that they have really become colorblind to music. They don't look at it 
they like what they like. They're not mm-hmm. looking at it. We older people, and Stephen, I'll include you, David. I don't know how old you are, but um, we tend to want to put labels and boxes on things. I don't think millennials do. I don't think they care. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like what they like, and and you know the same fan can like uh, you know Kelsey Ballerini and Casey Musgraves, and then turn around and go see. Um, Travis Scott or Anderson Pack, and and show mm-hmm. up the next day and go see, you know, Twenty One Pilots and love it all. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I think music and, and live music, especially, is so healthy because they're not locked into it has to be this or it has to be that. So, um, uh, I no, I don't. I don't think there's any stigma. What, what hip hop has done very well over the last five, six, seven years is they've turned what was somewhat of a static performance art, right? into shows and, and they've you know some of the great hip-hop artists have become incredible performers and frontmen so if you go see kendrick lamar he's as much a rock star as any rock act yeah um and so uh and, and i think that art form developed into that i don't know that it was there at the beginning but but artists have figured out that live performance is just as important and have really developed into great performers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um why don't we talk about managers for a second? Because we brought that up a couple of times. What are some of the qualities that you have seen over the years of a really good artist manager? Well, I'm going to back up for one second. And I'll answer that question. I always get asked, well, what's the difference between a manager and an agent? <laughs> and, um, and so I'm going to give you my analogy for everyone on the, who's listening. That's a football fan, but you can apply it to anything. Um, I, I look at the whole group as a, as a football team, and the artist is the owner of that team. And the artist, as the owner, hires a head coach. That head coach is the manager. That manager is going to call the plays. He's going to field the best he or she's going to field the best team they can. And that manager goes out and gets a quarterback and a running back and a, and a you know wide receiver, and that's your agent and your lawyer and your publicist and your record company. And that head coach calls all the plays. And if you have a strong owner with a point of view who hires a great head coach and lets him or her do her job, and that head coach fields a great team, and that quarterback has the confidence to say to the head coach, we ought to call this play, not that play, you go on and win a lot of games. On the other hand, if you have a weak or uninformed owner who hires a mediocre head coach, who fields a team of, you know, uh, pretty mediocre players, you don't tend to win. So th- that, that's my analogy. Mm-hmm. So using that to answer your question, a good manager has a point of view, has a plan in mind, wants input from everybody on his team about that plan, is flexible enough to change based on that input, and most importantly, can make decisions. Right, being paralyzed, not making decisions, slows the whole process down. So there, there are people you deal with who just get can't make a decision, can't decide if if the mix is right on a record, can't pick a single, can't decide to go left or right, and in those moments of hesitation, the business moves on. Managers who empower the people around them and and lets them go forward. And if you make a mistake, you fix it and you move on. You don't chastise someone because they may have made. Nobody gets it perfect, but no decision, then nothing gets done. So, you know, the best managers to me 
have a point of view, communicate with their, their clients, um, listen, but, but have the strength to push them in the right direction, um, and, uh, and then empower their team. And, and you know, as an agent, if, if that manager wants my input, will put me on the phone with an artist to say, here's why we're going left or right, I think we all win. We all do better for it. Okay. And then um, you sort of uh, alluded to it, but on the other side, what, what do you think are some qualities of, of, of a poor management? Well, it, it's sort of the reverse. Someone mm-hmm. who, who can't make a decision, someone who's scared, right, who, who is frightened to tell their client, look, this isn't working, we've got to try this, or, or doesn't have a point of view, um, uh, I, I always tell her, uh, this is an old, old story about an artist named Dion Ferris and Dion was a great singer. She had a great song called hold on, uh, back in God, it must be the late eighties or the, or early nineties. Um, and she was on Columbia records. Um, and she would go out every night and she would sing this hit. And then the song after this hit was a huge ballad. It was an incredible ballad about sexual abuse. It was a really powerful song. And I, having seen the show a couple of times, went to her and said, Dion, you, you wasted that song because when, it, when you only have one hit and the audience comes to see a show, once you've played the hit, you've lost them, meaning they've sort of pulled back. And if you flip those two songs, that ballad's going to have much more impact because the anticipation for the hit will keep them focused. Now, her bandmates looked at her and said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an agent. But she did it, and it changed the whole dynamic of the song, right? Her manager never had a point of view on that. Managers should have a point of view on a set, what it looks like and what the pacing should be, and should they do a cover song. In that same artist, that label at the time was pushing her to do morning radio every day, every day. And she was doing shows every night, and they were burning this girl out from both ends of the candle. And her manager should have said to the label, she's tired, she's exhausted, i got to pull this back. But, of course, the label would say to him, you know, if she doesn't do this interview, it's going to kill the single. If she doesn't do this interview, and he wasn't strong enough to push back. And she went on the radio in North Carolina, a morning show. DJ says to her, so how's it going? Yeah, you must be on top of the world, top five hit right? And she started to cry on the air, had a nervous breakdown, mm. went home to Atlanta, never heard from again. Mm. Right Now, years later, she made more music, and she's an incredible talent, but I tell the story because her manager should have stood up and said enough. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and that's part of that job. So um, managers need to have a point of view, be strong, know who to trust, and, and, um, and not be afraid to say, I don't know. Not be afraid to have people around them that they trust to say, look, I'm lost on this one. What do you think we should do? And then when they get an opinion, actually act on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, based upon the Dion Ferris story, we actually have a tweet that can connect that. Okay. Ethan Flynn would like to know, what have you noticed about artists' mental health during touring? And for those who handle it well, what are their methods? <sighs> well, <laughs> I, I think... You know, having friends on the road is important. Um, having management, a team that understands how hard the road is. Um, you know, how many shows in a row can they do? What are, you know, are days off, really days off? Um, uh, 
is, is all part of it. I, I think this generation of artists is in a different pressure cooker than two generations ago because you, you still, when you ended a show, you got to go into your bus, you had your bandmates, you had you know crew people, you had a friend, and you got to turn off. Now, because of social media, you don't turn off, right? You're getting on the bus and you're reading what everybody thought about what you just did in real time. And so how you process that, how artists deal with that, um, puts pressures on that, that I'm not even sure even us as professionals understand. So it's hard. Um, but again, going back to great management, good agents, you, you want to pace a tour where you give artists time off. You, you want to be able to push back against the label of, you know, they can't do that many interviews. I don't want to fly them across the ocean four times in a month. Um, I want to give them the ability to enjoy the wins. Um, and, and it's a skill just as well. And, and the really good managers are taking that into account uh, all the time. And I think people are, are very aware of it. You know, listen, every generation has had artists who have, have we've lost because of mental health issues. It's not just this generation. It's, it's happened over all, all the years. And, um, and being an artist in the public spotlight is, is a lot of pressure. But um, I think we're all pretty aware of it and, and try to do our best job. I also want to touch upon, I want to kind of go back in history a little bit to that book, Powerhouse, that you mentioned. And it's a, it's a great book, and I would suggest people really check it out. It's a great sort of oral history of CAA. And I, I hated it, but go ahead. Oh, it's a horrible yeah. book. I think it's the worst book ever, and you are completely right. What, you're right. All fluff. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's, just, it's worthless. But anyway, um, in there, there's a, there's a part uh, where you're talking, and there's a great run that CAA had in the uh, mid-late 80s. You know, everything you guys were doing great. But then uh, what happened is one of your colleagues, Bobby Brooks, was in a helicopter crash with Stevie Ray Vaughan and both uh, perished, and that was in 1990. And in the book, you were quoted as saying that that was when the first window closed. Um, but it, it never discussed what, what you meant by that. And I was just curious what, what you meant when you said that. Well, the reason I don't love the book is because of, of the style of just interview after interview. But mm -hmm. that book was also what I, what I a very famous Japanese movie called Rashomon, where, you know, 40 years later, everybody's memory of what really happened mm -hmm. is different. And Rashomon was a movie where seven people watch a murder and, and they interview every person after and every one of them saw something different. Mm-hmm. And that's what that book is. Everybody saw something <laughs> different. And so as someone who still lives in it, I think what I've saw and what I've lived is the reality of it. But when you read it, you're getting different perspectives, some from people who left, so they may be bitter, some from people who didn't find the success they hoped they had. And, and so I, it, the first part of it on how it was built is great. Uh, I'm not, it's not a terrible book. He did a good job writing it, but it's not <laughs> – you have to look at it through the lens of it was 30 years ago and everyone's memory is skew skewed to what they wanted to believe. Mm -hmm. to the, the first window closing, look, anything that lasts as long as this has, 35 years, where you're literally at the top of the game and, and we are blessed to have been, you know, the biggest and, and, you know, arguably the best agency over the last 35 years, to have that consistency is sort of remarkable. I, I can't believe it. Um, 
But there are phases. There are moments when the industry changes, your competition changes, uh, the buyers change. There was no AEG in Live Nation when we first started. Independence change, deal flow changes. So you have to adapt to every one of those. That first run was so remarkable. It was so it, it, it was a house of fire that you can't even describe to be a part of. And every day was beyond belief. And so when that you have a tragedy where one of your key people, because we weren't that big, dies in that tragedy, it, it's a blow to your solar plexus that you don't recuperate for a while from. And um, and so that that closed. And then you sort of readapt. You sort of look at how we're all going to move forward. And we've had three more great runs. They were different. They felt different. Um, the management of the company changed. And, and, of course, when Tom left 21 years ago, uh, not long after Bobby died, um, it changed again because I became, you know, the head of the company, mm -hmm. and, and we've gone through a couple of changes then. But you can only, you know, for all the millennials listening and the young kids and the college kids, you know, the, your view of time is very different than my view of time or Stephen's view of time. Mm -hmm. And it's only over those long periods that you understand those ebbs and flows are part of life and you know you're going to get out of the next one, and so you got to be prepared for it and try to build towards it. Um, so all I meant by that is that it was a window that closed and another one opened. And, um, you know, I always look back at that and say, thankfully, we got through it and stayed on top of the game. A lot of businesses would have imploded at that moment, and um, thankfully we didn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. And can I ask one final question unless marconi has one more no go ahead okay and um and that is because we do have so many college students who are going to listen to this and they're inspired uh in terms of getting internships at caa whether it's new york la nashville what are some of the things that you some of the qualities in a student you're looking for to get an internship and then for those people when they eventually get hired is it still the mailroom or is it a different training program that you have well, getting an internship here is hard, not because it, it, we don't have it. We, we do almost 60 to 70 interns a summer. Um, we get, on average, 14 to 1,500 applications. Mm -hmm. um, they all come in. They, they have to be in by, I think, November 1 or December 1. I think it's November 1 um, for the following summer. Um, and then, you know, we narrow that down to two or 300 kids, and then we interview them on the phone. And you're sort of looking for people who are articulate, well-spoken, passionate, understand their desires, um, uh, you know, and, and can communicate. We're in a business of communication. So that's what you're looking for. Um, and you hopefully get great candidates. And, and we've been blessed to, you know, every year we, we tend to get incredible classes. Um, so uh, it's being well-rounded. It's being articulate. It's having a point of view and and being thoughtful. You know, you, I, I can't tell you, David, how many times someone will come interview with me and I'll say to them at the end of the interview, okay, it's five years from now. If you could be doing anything, what would you be doing? Now, if you're sitting across from me, there's only one right answer. <laughs> I want to be an agent. I'm telling you four out of five, don't say that. Mm. I'd love to be a producer. I want to be a manager. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I want to look and say, are you kidding me? <laughs> why, why would I hire you? But I don't. I mean, I listen. Sure. But so it, it's being that thoughtful and, and really, um, you know, and being confident. You know, at the end of the day, when you're in the service business, you're a lawyer, you're a manager, you're an agent, that artist is trusting you with their life. 
Those songs are their children. It, it's their art, and it's fragile. So if you're not confident, they're scared. And so whether you're 22 or 60, you know, to just have enough confidence to say, I believe in you and I'm going to take care of this means a lot. And, and so being able to communicate that is a big part of what we all do. Yep. All right. And I think speaking of do, I think we need to be done because we promised you that we would get you off the air at a certain time. And it's that uh, oh, time. I, I've got it. It's there you go. Whatever, I'm uh, thrilled to be a part of it. Stephen, thank you for uh, yes. being one of the early people in my time. life. I, um, uh, I'm, as I said earlier, I, I've been blessed. I get to, to do what I love for 40-plus years. Um, exceptional. And, and, uh, and to get paid to do it is <laughs> unbelievable. So right. uh, I'm a very, very lucky man. Oh, we're lucky to have you. Yeah. Not, not being facetious. We're this, you're the one of the most exciting guests to have on that we've ever had on the show. So thank you so much. Oh, for, wow. For thank this. you. I appreciate that. And, and maybe we'll do a follow-up next year. But I appreciate everything, guys. Sure. Okay, great. We'll come to the office and we'll do it live. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> thank you. See you later. All right, Bye-bye. Thanks. Take Bye. care, everybody. That was Rob Light of Creative Artist Agency. Good, huh? Yes, very good interview. Teresa, did you get anything out of that, or was it a waste of your time? Why would it be a waste of my time? That's a good answer. There we go. <laughs> it was good. There was some good stuff in there. I can't wait to listen back to that podcast and no, see, very good. see what there is. Ashley, do you believe, as a listener and also uh, somebody from Germany, do you believe that that was also good? Yes, I did. Very good. That's it's great. Very articulate. It's great. Yeah, he's yeah. great. And a lot to say. I remember him sitting in the back of the room... Uh, when he came to class, uh-huh. he'd sit in the back of the room and, you know, not contribute. Uh, but uh, these guys, you know, the guys on concert board and the guys at WAR, like he was talking about, it's what they did outside of the classroom that made them as good as they are today. You know, the Steves and the Harveys and the guys he was talking about, John mm-hmm. Sykes and Ed, Ed uh, Levine and so on. It wasn't what they got in the classroom, especially at, at Newhouse, because Newhouse has its big name at Syracuse, and I should uh, say I have three degrees from Syracuse, so I'm not trying to bust it, but there was a lot of guys at Newhouse that were wearing turtlenecks and blazers, and they had slept on Freddie Silverman's couch 30 years ago, you know, like you'd feed these people that still know Clive Davis and so on, and you will, it was really... Just the opportunities they made for themselves because they were so assertive outside of the classroom that that gave them this energy to do uh, as well as they've done. And for those listening, I want you to Google Fred Silverman because he was a huge executive. But we're not going to tell you. All three networks. Yeah. Okay. You just told him. Fine. Okay. Hey, we have a show next week. Uh, Our guest is Jonathan Shank from Red Light Management, Mm -hmm. and two weeks after that, Joe Riccatelli, co-president of RCA Records, is going to be here live in the studio on Brave New Radio. (laughs) Yeah, so we need to end it because Ashley has her own show that she needs to do, and she's going to play some rock and roll music. Very good. Play me some rock and roll, Ashley. So, Dr. Stabon, thank you so much. You too, and my co-host, Professor Phil. That is I. Thank me so much. Teresa, thank you so much. I hope your parents are listening and hope they're proud. She just smiles. And then, Ashley, I hope my parents are listening and you're so proud. Very good. Thank you very much. So, for everybody here at Brave New Rita, we want to thank you for listening to Music Biz 101 and more. At the end of every show, we do not say hello. How stupid would that be? So Hola. <laughs> oh, no. Hola, no. Instead, we say, do it with me, everybody. Hi.